Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van, but you can call me Mike, uh, a host uh, for New Books in History. Today, I have with me a colleague, and I consider a good friend, uh, Clara Eddington, who's going to be speaking about her new book, Beyond the Asylum, Mental Illness and French Colonial Vietnam. And this book came out with Cornell in 2019. Claire received her PhD in History and Ethics of Public Health, from Columbia in 2013. Her dissertation, which is the basis of the, of the book, was entitled Beyond the Asylum, A Social History of Colonial Psychiatry in French Indochina. After finishing at Columbia, she had a postdoc at Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center. And then in 2015, the Boston girl relocated mm-hmm. to San Diego, beautiful <laughs> sunny San Diego, uh, where she is a, an assistant professor of history at UC San Diego. And I'm actually interviewing her live in person on a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, is it Wednesday morning. Yeah. Wednesday morning here in San Diego. So it's a, a long way from Boston weather, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Claire, welcome to New Books. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to have this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So um, tell us, how did you come to be an expert in Vietnamese history, uh, French history, and especially an expert in the history of psychiatry? and colonial psychiatry? That's a good question. Um, I, As an undergraduate, I studied public health and French literature at Johns Hopkins University. And at the time, it was really unclear how I was ever going to bring these two fields of study together. But when I started my PhD at Columbia, um, I started to get interested in the history of public health in the French empire. And I thought I was going to be working on French West Africa, but my department at Columbia, the Department of Sociomedical Sciences at the Public Health School, um, had just won a big grant from the National Institutes of Health to basically send researchers from Columbia to Vietnam um, to start these new collaborative projects to bring more kind of historical and social scientific thinking um, to kind of big public health problems in Vietnam today. So I went originally as part of that team in 20. Six no, 20, um, 2007. Um, and, and at what, what point yeah. in your graduate career was this? This was in my second year. Okay. Right. Um, so I ended up teaching a course on oral history, theories and methodology. And while I was there, I started poking around in the archives, the National Archives of Vietnam in Hanoi. Um, and while I was there, I discovered this treasure trove of patient case files um, from two asylums um, that the French had built um, when Vietnam was Indochina in 1919 and in 1934. What are the names of those two asylums? Um, they're the Bien Hoa Asylum, um, which was built outside Saigon in 1919, and it is um, the site of a, the largest psychiatric hospital in Vietnam today. Um, the second, um, which eventually shuttered, um, was called the Voi Asylum, and it was in Baxang Province, about 60 kilometers outside Hanoi. Um, so when I discovered these patient case files, um, I was really struck by the extraordinary movements of patients. Um, 
who seem to cycle endlessly in and out of asylums, but also between asylums, prisons, youth reformatories, um, hospitals, and family homes. And this really, I think, challenged my own preconceptions about what colonial asylums looked like, um, which are these really kind of forbidding institutions where patients went and they never left, um, and that they were run by experts who enjoyed broad and unquestioned authority. Um, And instead, what I really discovered in these patient case files is how the movements of patients in and out of these institutions was very contested, um, not only by the patients themselves, but by their families and their communities as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it provided a way of thinking about the relationship between the colonial state and its subjects um, from a really different point of view than what we normally consider um, in terms of like more like kind of political histories, which really dominate um, accounts of this period, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and so, yeah, it provided a different lens onto thinking about the social history of Vietnam, to thinking about how um, psychiatric um, concepts travel across cultures mm-hmm. um, and what the kind of everyday exchanges between lay people and experts can actually tell us about the local dynamics of colonial rule. I became much more interested in the relationship between the asylum and the community um, rather than just kind of take the clinical encounter on its own terms. I'm mm-hmm. um, just studying the relationship between the patient and the doctor. I thought there was actually much more room for expanding the archive of colonial psychiatry to include a wide range of voices um, that are kind of not typically heard from in these, in these accounts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. So, you know, I, as, as someone who does uh, colonial history in, in Vietnam, I'm always sort of have this difficult question. Am I more a historian of Vietnam, more mm-hmm. a historian of France or mm-hmm. a historian of something abstract like empire? Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself? I mean, do you see yourself as historian of France, of Vietnam, of, of psychiatry, of all of the above? Like we're, um, yeah, I mean, this is this book is really aiming to talk to three different fields: um, Southeast Asian studies, the history of French Empire, and the history of medicine. And partly that's just a reflection of my own training. Um, I was trained between Columbia's history department and this interdisciplinary social sciences department in a public health school, so I was used to kind of using drawing on lots of different kinds of methodologies or waking. Um, talking through problems in public health and from a range of different disciplinary perspectives. Um, I think in terms of how I think about myself now, it's really evolved since when I first started graduate school. I was trained primarily as a historian of medicine, as, as a historian of empire. I think now I consider myself increasingly a Southeast Asian historian or historian of Vietnam. Um, my dissertation was based mostly on um, these patient case files and also documents that were in French, but subsequently after, after the dissertation and now that's included in the book are um, much, um, um, sorry, there's like much more of a presence of um, Vietnamese sources. Mm -hmm. So I added a chapter on the Vietnamese popular press and representations of mental illness and about treatment advice, um, um, that are being communicated between Vietnamese experts and a Vietnamese lay public. So as I began to dive more and more into Vietnamese sources and to really think about my contribution of this book to our understanding of the social history of Vietnam, um, that's I started to think of myself more and more um, kind of in those terms, like mm-hmm. how I can um, speak to my colleagues in Vietnamese studies who are working on a wide range of issues in social and cultural and political history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, you're absolutely correct. The book, the book works really well in several different registers. I think 
Thank you. Historians of France will find much of value in it. Historians of Vietnam, absolutely. I think, you know, clearly historians of psychiatry, but but also Southeast Asianists. And I, and I would really love to see more Southeast Asianists mm-hmm. reading outside of the nation state in which they work. Um, and, you know, at, at one point in the book, you do some great comparison with um, the uh, the institutions of the asylum and um, the the sort of work colonies, which we'll talk about sure. in um, in Vietnam, but also in Java. Yes, yeah. In what was uh, Butinzorg? Yes, uh, yeah. Which is now um, um, not Bandung, but it's um, Bogor. Bogor, yes. yeah. Okay. And you you showed um, you know you showed that you can play well with others, and <laughs> you you can work across colonial boundaries because you've worked with. Um, the, the always delightful Hans Pohl, yeah, yeah. Um, who's a specialist on uh, psychiatry in, in the Dutch yeah. East Indies. Yeah. What did, what did you benefit from um, working with Hans and and, uh, and also looking at uh, other colonial examples in this time period? Um, yeah, so I, I was basically just ended up following the psychiatrists that I was studying. And so what I was most struck by in some ways was how these French psychiatrists who are working in asylums and um, open psychiatric services and hospitals that the French also pioneered during mm-hmm. this early 20th century moment. Um, these psychiatrists were not particularly interested in what their French counterparts were doing in North Africa and Algeria, for instance, although Algeria has absorbed a lot more of her scholarly attention, I think because of some of the outsized role of France Fanon and framing these questions around medicine and colonialism. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, he looms so large he loomed, in, in right. the history of colonial psychiatry. I mean, it, it's, absolutely. It's like, it's inescapable, but it also was very clear to me that the psychiatrists that I was studying were much more interested actually in what in what Dutch experts were doing in neighboring um, what would become Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so what I ended up doing was following these um, French psychiatrists on their study trips um, to the Dutch East Indies in the late 19th and early 20th century. And they were really interested in what an effective model of psychiatric care in their region looked like and if it could be imported back to Indochina and it adapted to meet local circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was in part based upon um, more long-term academic um, interest in the in what the Dutch had been doing um, in Indonesia from uh, in the Dutch East Indies since the mid-19th century. The Dutch were seen as these benign and effective bureaucrats who had pioneered <laughs> really um, charming people. Yeah, um, no, but they had um um, in terms of the kind of conservation of ancient temples, in terms of the linguistic training of bureaucrats, um, in terms of their kind of medical care, um, they were much more advanced, advanced than the French. I actually think the French felt a kind of um, inferiority um, compared to what their counterparts in, other, yeah. in the region were doing. Yeah, um, I think that's a, a common pattern in um, French rule in Southeast Asia is that they're constantly comparing themselves to the Dutch and then yeah. looking at the British Raj. And uh, sure. in the documents yeah. I've seen, they're wringing their hands going, you know, how are the British so good at administering with so few yeah. people and it's so efficient yeah. and we can't do yeah. it. And then later when the Americans come, they, they're very interested in mm-hmm. developments in Manila and so forth. But, you know, they weren't just comparing different forms of colonial expertise. They're also comparing the populations. Yeah. Um, the indigenous populations in Java, for instance, into China. And partly that's why they were convinced that this model of psychiatric care of using these large agricultural colonies, the use of labor as a kind of therapy would work well in Indochina because they were convinced that 
both sites had similar kinds of climate um, in terms of geography, in terms of um, kind of a population profile. Um, and this really helped us start to shore up or firm up notions of Southeast Asia as a distinctive kind of place that required a distinctive kind of expertise mm-hmm. that I think really ended up setting psychiat- colonial psychiatric practices in Southeast Asia apart from other, um, other areas of the French empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this... Um, this research I did with Hans Poles, um, my colleague at the University of Sydney, um, was really exciting for me because it really, I think, shows a model of um, scholarly like engagement and collaboration. Um, I read French sources. He reads Dutch sources. The people I study were really interested in the people that he studied. And it became this kind of natural partnership of mm-hmm. how do we tether these two stories together and how do we talk about forms of inter-imperial scientific exchange that start developing in the region during this moment. So one of the main goals of my book is not only to tell a really rich local history of Vietnam, but also to put it in a regional and kind of global framework. Um, And I think in order to do that, we really need to pay attention to where our actors are moving, where they're looking, um, and kind of what are some of the long-term implications of these kinds of study trips for how subsequent experts would like look at the region as a, as a certain mm-hmm. kind of place. And building a body of knowledge that is uh, distinctly uh, colonial Southeast Asian, as opposed to what's coming from Europe at this time. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, you've probably seen Mitch Asso's book on the plantations, R- Rubber yeah. and the, the yeah. Making of Modern Viet- uh, Vietnam, which is uh, a previous podcast on this network. <laughs> <laughs> Download that one right now as <laughs> listeners as soon as you finish listening to this fascinating podcast. Um, but one of the things Mitch talks about in exactly the same time period are the um, the rubber experts going to Java and going to Sumatra and looking at um, Dutch examples and, and mm-hmm. British examples in the, mm-hmm. in the Federated Malay States. I mean, this is something I really love about studying the history of medicine and science is our actors are not just, they're not just colonial bureaucrats, they also style themselves as these international men of science who are keyed into these other regional and global networks um, that really, I think, yeah, militate against our our nation, nation-based frameworks. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think also in terms to the extent to which that they were forced to engage with um other members of the colonial administration who didn't share necessarily the kind of same kinds of objections or uh, um same kinds of investments as they did um, to the extent that they had to engage with communities in order to get their work done. It shows actually just how kind of messy the deployment of colonial power was on the ground. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some of the big picture things you want to accomplish with the book? Uh, like what's your, like your elevator pitch? Um, how do you, how do you explain the book to somebody and what, what your contribution is? Sure. So, um, so this book really is intended to, show the major kinds of social, political, and economic transformations that are happening in Vietnam in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and how they're experienced by ordinary people. Um, So what I'm really trying to do in this story is like foreground the lives of some of the most marginalized people in colonial society, which are people who are coded as abnormal or mentally ill. Um, And to show the kind of tremendous forms of social and economic dislocation that produce new kinds of migration patterns that really reshape the relationships both among and between families um, and how people end up kind of negotiating a radically changed different kind of landscape. Um, 
families found it increasingly difficult to care for their own um, during this period. Um, and I'm kind of I'm interested in what happens when those networks start to kind of fall apart or um, disintegrate, right? Um, and what, in the face of modernization, in the face and, and of the in the social face of, dislocation of colonial development. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how um, some patients um, were fiercely guarded at home and kept away from the kind of prying eyes of colonial experts um, um, and officials, um, and others were very willingly given up to these institutions um, because families had really um, kind of expended all of their resources to care for these people at home. Um, so I'm kind of interested in looking at the all different kinds of ways in which households um, attempted to navigate um, these radically um, changed circumstances mm-hmm. um, and what those implications were um, for people who didn't quite fit in. And in the, the subjects that you look at, um, is there an impact on um, the practice of psychiatry in France from the, these colonial developments? Is there a way that the knowledge from the empire is I'm sorry, I have to say it. Striking back. Um, <laughs> does the Empire strike back? Um, there's a new Star Wars coming out. Oh got, my gosh! <laughs> all, all nerds are excited right now. Um, but it's, is there is there this this exchange from the colonial world? Like you know, I work on city planning, and, sure. and that's that's real clear. Gwendolyn Wright did some great yeah. work on that. Peter Rabinow and so yeah. forth. But yeah, is there a feedback? Um, to the extent that this that colonial psychiatrists were publishing in French medical journals, um, that they were pioneering um, electroshock therapy, for instance, was introduced in 1942 in Indochina, and those results were published Before in France. France. Before They're not using it in France? I believe they'd started using it in France, uh-huh. but um, the the realm of like experimentation was just much greater in a colonial setting. Because there were fewer constraints? constraints on white scientists I would using say, yeah. non-white body? Yeah, I think, yeah, you've got it. Yeah. Because um, the, there's a similar story that I've looked at with vaccinations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty they're, familiar they're story. field testing vaccines that right. in uh, right. Tonkin that they could right. never do right. in France in the 20th right. century. And you know, Rick Keller's talked a lot about this too, about um, in his book on um, French colonial Algeria mm-hmm. and the ways in which... Um, the colony served as a kind of like site of experimentation and the mm-hmm. formation of new kinds of psychiatric knowledge. Um, the French introduced open services, open psychiatric services in, um, in the metropole in the 1920s. Which means outpatient? Yeah. So basically there's a, there's a movement in the 1920s. Um, uh, there's a creation of this league for mental hygiene, which, proposes a new way of thinking about the relationship between institutions and mental illness, basically saying that mental illness is something that can be prevented and that if we identify it early, that there is a realm of possibility that kind of like early intervention and treatment can prevent against more kind of serious forms from occurring, which would mean long-term institutional confinement. Um, but it was in Indochina and in 1930 that these open services were actually encoded in French law for the first time. Um, so whereas these um, movements to promote um, radical reforms and asylum legislation in France were continuously mired in political controversy, what's really interesting is that there are a lot, number of innovations that actually happen in the colonies first. 
Um, so that's an important kind of insight in the book as well. Um, these aren't necessarily these kind of like backwater places. Like they're actually places where lots of experimentation and kind of freedom and openness to, mm-hmm. to innovate, um, it becomes possible. Mm-hmm. So what does your book have to say about larger issues of the colonial context, the colonial setting, mm-hmm. uh, the colonial encounter, uh, specifically in regards to issues of state repression, Vietnamese subaltern resistance to the state, um, and so forth? Sure. Um, so the colonial asylum, for I think a lot of reasons, has been considered this as a site of colonial hegemony and also where that hegemony has been contested or resisted. So a lot of historians of colonial psychiatry have really focused on how the insights of Foucault's madness and civilization, for instance, don't travel all that well to the colonies, that there was never any great confinement, that these institutions were mired in all sorts of kind of dysfunction and limited resources. Um, And I agree, and I think we can see a lot of the similar patterns um, happening in the colonial Vietnamese context. But what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of push even beyond that question and say, well, what can those limits of the hegemony of these institutions tell us about um, the relationship between the colonial state and its subjects in a new way? Um, So rather than really put the asylum at the front and center of the story, each chapter of the book is looking at the relationship between the asylum and the community in a different way. And what I end up seeing is not this kind of um, kind of like diffusion, like this kind of Foucauldian notion of a diffusion of psychiatric power out of these, sorry, out of these institutions. Um, but rather I see the ways in which um, these experts are very much relying on the participation of the public um, in terms of um Um, relying on families to tell them about the kind of long-term kind of mental profile of patients and also relying crucially on families to take patients back once they had been deemed cured or at least improved enough to go home. So they very much relied on families to provide forms of surveillance in the community um, in ways that I think really show how the spaces of surveillance both inside and outside the institution come to overlap. Um, And this was not an invention of the French, actually the Prior to French colonization, um, this was a long-term standing practice in Vietnamese communities to provide um, the expectation that that families would provide care. Um, This was actually encoded in the Zalong legal code in Vietnam from 1810, which was itself based on earlier Qing legal codes from China, um, and basically elaborated on all the different kind of punishments a family would face for not providing adequate care and surveillance of of individuals deemed mad, um, and the consequences if that if that had that surveillance failed and they committed murder, all their kinds of crimes, um, that the punishment would be felt not by the individual actually, but by the families. So one of the things I'm really trying to show in this book is that um, the French really didn't completely upend and introduce a completely brand new way of um, thinking about psychiatry, but it was inserted into pre-existing forms of surveillance and control um, that had existed long before the French arrived. Um, So one of the things I'm really trying to show in this book as well is um, how we have more kind of conventional narratives of like repression and resistance that, um, that these 
institutions of confinement, like prisons and asylums, for instance, um, were sites where the colonial subjects would actively resist. But I actually show how families were, in some instances, demanding for their family mem- members to be sent to these institutions and would refuse to take them back. Um, so we see in these instances how um, it kind of goes against the grain of what we would normally expect, and really showing how these institutions fit within much broader kind of household strategies of dealing with troublesome or delinquent um, or violent family members. Yeah, we have the, these images and stereotypes of the all-powerful colonial state, this Leviathan, and right. in reality, life is messy. And um, there's these yeah. all sorts of ways in which these stereotypical rules could be broken and power relationships are yeah. Not quite what, uh, yeah. as black and white as Yeah, like. and those relationships are being negotiated not only within yeah. these institutions, but in the relationships between the institutions and the outside world. Yeah, and then the yeah. negotiations between the family and the institution that you talk about, I found those exactly. really fascinating. Yeah. So we're actually we're actually getting into chapter one, which is um, uh, a background to uh, confinement, and it's on the, the legacy of the, quote, insane person in French Indochina. Mm-hmm. So you already said a few words on the... Um, the existing Vietnamese legal code in mm-hmm. regards to uh, the treatment of those deemed insane. And you mentioned this is the Xiaolong legal code. Mm-hmm. Um, it's after 1802, right? So it's about what year it's is an, it? It's in 1810. 1810, right. Yeah. So yeah. with this newly um, uh, established uh, Vietnamese dynasty, Wen dynasty, mm-hmm. uh, this emperor is like trying to rebuild Vietnam after several sure. decades of civil yeah. war and so forth. And it's basically putting into law what had already been a pretty commonplace social practice, right. as far as I can tell. But yeah. drawn and drawn from Chinese, yeah, and Chinese yeah. sources, and this is another example of the way yeah. in which many aspects of Vietnamese intellectual life look north to to Chinese precedent. Yeah, and it's it's not just the borrowing of kind of um, legal regulations or conventions. Um, Actually, Vietnamese understandings of mental illness are also rooted in more traditional Chinese um, ideas around. Um, the kind of holistic relationship between bodies and their environment, about physical and emotional health. Um, the term for um, kind of insanity or crazy in, in Vietnamese, dian, is actually taken from a Chinese term, um, almost um, which literally means kind of upside down. Um, so in both the kind of the language and the the consumptions of mental illness or madness at this particular time itself are very much being drawn from these kind of these Chinese orientations to thinking about um, these kinds of disorders. Mm-hmm. And so then starting in the late 1850s, you have the French intervention. They've seized the area around what's mm-hmm. now Ho Chi Minh City by mm-hmm. the 1860s. They grabbed Cambodia as a protectorate. Mm-hmm. Two decades later, they've seized Tonkin and Annam and eventually Laos. And they've, they've got the Indo-Chinese Federation mm-hmm. um, set up in, in the space of about a generation, about a generation, sure. longest Longest experience is going to be in Cochinchin in the south, yeah. area around Saigon. So um, as the, the French start to, and, and they, they intend to be there for quite some time, start building big fancy buildings mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know, infrastructure that shows permanence. And they take with them this, uh, this notion of the French civilizing mission and take that very mm-hmm. seriously. So much of that gets translated into mental health care. So... Um, what do the French colonizers bring with them in terms of their ideology and practice around mental health care? Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned some fundamental changes in the late 19th, mm-hmm. early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not like they're coming in with a homogenous uh, discourse 
for the whole colonial era, they go through a transformation. So could you say a few words on that, what, what the French initially brought with them and then how that mm-hmm. changed up, say, into the 1920s, 1930s? Sure. So when the French first arrived in the colony, I have um, documents from colonial officials in the, 19, uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, basically remarking on what they thought was a striking lack of mental illness in the colony. So basically... French definitions of of madness during this period really focus around kind of um, very violent, very visible forms of of mental illness. And this is encoded in the 1838 famous French asylum law. Um, It's around the the figure of the aliené, right? Someone who's kind of like alienated from their their true self and um, is no longer able to kind of exercise their, their kind of political rights as a citizen. Um, under French law. Um, so the French, when they came to Indochina, they didn't necessarily see these these forms of madness that they had been more accustomed to in France. Um, so they talked about the striking lack of, of madness in the colony. What you see then 30, 40 years later is them developing one of the most robust, extensive psychiatric assistance programs in the entire French empire. So evidently there was madness. <laughs> right. And so this is what is the... Um, Explaining the shift in orientation, how you go from saying there's no mental illness in the colony to having this really extensive hospital and asylum-based network of institutions, this is really explaining the shift is like one of the key kind of um, um, kind of focuses of the book. Um, so, what I'm really interested in how is in how mental illness is transformed um, into a problem of colonial governance. Um, and how I track, and I am interested in how mental illness becomes increasingly visible to the colonial state. And I think this happens for a, a range of reasons, this transformation of mental illness into a problem of colonial governance. First is international pressure. We'd already spoken a little bit about kind of these feelings of like inferiority vis-a-vis their other colonial counterparts in Southeast Asia, what the British are doing in India, for instance, or the Dutch are doing in the Dutch East Indies. But there's also increasing local pressure like at home in Indochina. Um, so because of the, the creation of these racially um, discriminatory tax policies and land policies, the creation of a plantation economy, especially in the South and Cochin China, you start seeing like huge migrations of people from country to urban centers. Um, and you also see a huge swell in the number of vagrants who are like who are flooding into cities like Saigon and Haiphong and Hanoi. Um, and these vagrants are often picked up on, um, it was on vagrancy charges, right? That was considered illegal mm-hmm. by the French state at the time. And it was once they were sent into kind of into city prisons that they became to be identified as somehow like of either physically ill or mentally ill. Um, and p- prisons became increasingly overcrowded. They were then sent to hospitals where there was very little support to care for them. And all of a sudden, as the French are building this large infrastructures you're talking about, it creates the structures where it makes it a lot more possible to see mental illness for the first time, to make it visible in a way that it wasn't before. So you start seeing colonial officials saying, well, we didn't think that there was mental illness before, but maybe it was just because we couldn't see it and now that we can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this increasing pressure um, being placed on the colonial state to provide care for the poor, for the sick, for prisoner populations, um, began to intensify calls for the creation of an asylum. 
Now, some of the earliest patients who are being coded as mentally ill um, in the late 1890s, early 1900s are being sent back to France. There's being sent to the Saint-Pierre Marseille, uh, asylum in Marseille. Um, and this was considered an extremely kind of expensive proposition and really unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was the colony in uh, Indochina was much further away from France than Algeria, for instance, and there was just no... Um, there's no way that the colonial state could possibly support that in the mm-hmm. long term. Um, so you start seeing um, officials, including um, prosecutors, people, um, prison officials and health officials start kind of agitating for the need for an asylum system. And they start kind of surveying their like provincial chiefs. Um, so the heads of the heads of the various states under the, the three provinces that co- now comprise Vietnam. So this is a process that I trace in that first chapter mm-hmm. um, is the, the debates over whether or not to bring this 1838 French asylum law to Indochina and what that would look like in practice. And basically that law states that people who are considered mentally ill should be taken away from their, their domestic lives and placed into institutions under expert supervision. So it's really carving out this new kind of professional space for experts to um, to provide um, oversight, diagnosis, and treatment. Um, and really the treatment, a successful treatment depended on being severed from the kind of the home situation that it had produced these kinds of diseases in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, the creation of an asylum system was responding to these kind of international pressures of the French to assert their prestige, right, to fulfill their civilizing mission, these local pressures at home to accommodate the care for people who have been displaced from their family homes and communities, um, um, whose, um, whose presence has been really taxing the charitable um, um, charitable networks, mm-hmm. private philanthropy, and also state resources, um, it's also kind of an expression of the professionalization of psychiatry that's happening at the time um, and um, how experts themselves, psychiatric experts themselves are trying to kind of like stake their claim um, on their own kind of like professional autonomy and need for resources to deal with a very specific, unruly, um, very demanding kind of patient population. Mm-hmm. So, so far we've been talking about Vietnamese patients. Sure. Uh, but you did mention that French patients were being sent to Marseille. Yeah. Um, what um, can you say some more on French patients? I mean, this is a colonial setting, so yeah. is everything equal inside the asylum? Um, no, <laughs> it's not. So one of the things that's really interesting about the two asylums that the French built in Indochina is that they are mixed race asylums. So whereas the British in India had race specific asylums, like for, for natives only mm-hmm. um, in Indochina, they were confined in the same institution. Um, I talk about the asylum in the book as a kind of colony within a colony. It's almost a kind of idealized microcosm of what colonial society looked like in the sense that when patients were sent to these asylums, they were divided into different pavilions according to their race, their gender, and the severity of their diagnosis. Um, the pavilions themselves were, were racially segregated. So Europeans were put on one, one part of the asylum property, Vietnamese on the other. Um, each pavilion was named after a French, a famous French psychiatrist. Um, and um, it was really meant, and the kinds of um, the meals that patients were provided 
the kinds of leisure activities they engaged in, um, the forms of labor that they were compelled to engage in, the ways in which the, the, the rhythms of asylum life were kind of articulated to patients were really meant to um, emphasize um, or to kind of reflect what a kind of idealized colonial society would look like. Now you mentioned the food and I found that section just so <laughs> fascinating yeah. and such a really rich uh, insight. I mean, just a little archival treasure. Sure. Um, so what's, what's the menu like for um, uh, a French patient uh, compared to a Vietnamese yeah. patient? I mean, the French are eating a, f- a very typical French diet. They're eating, um, they're eating meat and vegetable sides. They're eating ice cream. Yeah, they're actually they drinking ice cream. They're ice cream. <laughs> they're drinking wine. Um, the patients are drinking wine, and then the, the French patients yeah. are drinking wine at least. Um, yeah, um, and the Vietnamese patients are following a much more kind of yeah, kind of conventional, like traditional Vietnamese diet in terms of rice, small protein, fish sauce. Um, one of the things that. Um, asylum directors would remark on is how many patients improved just with um, regular sleep and food. Mm, Um, So I think the kind of um, the kind of like nutritional value of um, yeah, just being able to kind of like rely on regular meals was itself seen as therapeutic. That's an important insight for uh, graduate students and junior faculty as well. Sleep and food is very good for you. So yeah, yeah. Any of yeah. you are listening. <laughs> um, but the, uh, in addition to what's being offered, and in terms of food, I mean, on the one hand, it's they're culturally appropriate, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you, you know, Vietnamese patients may not like French food or so forth, but there's also a huge wealth disparity and mm-hmm. power disparity. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a French menu like that is much more expensive to produce. That's true. In yeah. southern Vietnam than the Vietnamese food. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's also really interesting is that there wasn't just um, the segregation by race, actually within the pavilion, within the Vietnamese pavilions, there's also segregation by class. Um, so in 1934, the Bien Hoa Asylum outside Saigon inaugurated a new paying service for psychiatric patients. Um, and this was intended as a measure of actually increasing some of the revenue of the asylum, which had fallen on really dire financial straits because of the depression. Um, so they're basically trying to encourage the Vietnamese elites to send patients there with the promise that they would be kind of better cared for. Um, they would yeah, be given better linens, be um, given better food. Um, so there's also, they're not, so, not just concerns of race, but also of class that are actually baked into the ways in which these institutions are, are being run. Mm-hmm. And I think the most crucial kind of difference that emerges is the expectations for labor. Yeah, that's patients. what I wanted to ask you about because the, yeah. the labor is really important and raises uh, a number of interesting questions. On the, sure. on the one hand, labor is uh, justified as an important part of the therapy, giving them something to do. I'm sure board patients appreciated something to do. But the the labor is going to be different for the Vietnamese patients compared to the French patients. Yeah, and um, also this is a colonial setting where it's it's all about labor and controlling resources, mm-hmm. be they the rubber, or oil, coal, but also human resources. So what? Absolutely. How how does a colon? What's unpack the labor in a colonial asylum? What's, what's at stake here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so patients were sent to work in the open fields. They're doing a lot of agricultural labor, um, but they were also doing forms of um, 
basket weaving, of mending clothes. They were building bricks. They're actually tapping latex from rubber trees that were grown on the asylum grounds. They were really involved in the everyday kind of maintenance of the asylum. And this was developed in the 1920s because asylums were receiving, um, they were not receiving a lot of financial support from the colonial state. Um, so this became a kind of method of like financial survival, basically, for these institutions to stay afloat. At the same, so that they could make enough money from patient labor to help balance the books. It was almost like they were. It was less almost that they were making money than they didn't have to pay someone else to do okay. these kinds of necessary tasks. Um, at the same time, uh, asylum directors would insist that the labor was both voluntary, that patients wanted to do it, and that it was therapeutic. It was actually crucial to them being able to actually become cured. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say, too, that they were using different kinds of pharmaceutical drugs, um, particularly sedatives. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they start to inaugurate electroshock therapy in the early 1940s. But the fact that they were relying on labor so heavily as a kind of therapeutic agent, I think really shows at the time how psychiatrists had very little kind of tools at their disposal. Um, now, what was really striking to me was but okay, can I yeah, one sure. second though? But this taps into a larger um, French and European attitude. It was really, I think, stemming from the Romantic era about labor and connecting with nature. Sure. Yeah. Ma- ma- yeah. Helping to heal you. Right? Yeah. Right. So this all comes from kind of early 19th century um, um, kind of rural ideals, the ideal, the idea that with coming industrialization, um, that leaving the city and going to the countryside would be like restorative, not just physically, but also morally. Um, and this is referred to in the realm of um, history of mental illness, mental health, as, in terms of moral treatment, mm-hmm. um, that having access to fresh air and sunlight um, and would actually kind of like produce a kind of a reordering of like the interior private life. Um, and there's something really compelling about this. And especially as the psychiatric profession enters a crisis at the turn of the century because they're unable to demonstrate therapeutic effectiveness, it's not all together that's surprising that in the early 20th century, they kind of go back to these earlier kind of romantic, as you say, rural ideals um, of thinking about the use of labor, that the idea of being outdoors as kind of the center the center point of how you think about therapy. Yeah. Which, now, which in the colonial setting is yeah. more than a little ironic because yeah. the colonizers are building cities right. and talking about bringing in industry and sure. there's this emphasis on urbanization and modernity. But here you, right. you're harking back to this idealized pre-modern, pre-industrial, right. traditional life. Right. And that possibly you know, the, uh, the modern world, the industrialized world drives us crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's part of that. Actually, Vietnamese commentators are talking a lot about that in the pages of the popular press as well. Um, And to get back to your kind of original question, um, I mean, the other thing that's really ironic here is how sensitive French asylum directors are in this moment in Indochina to charges of exploitation um, and the sensitivity to using labor um, when, as we know, it's there are all these exploitative labor practices that are happening in the colony at that period. So the fact that they're so sensitive and really insist on the voluntariness of patient labor is something that I really try to expose in this book, these kind of tensions that emerge 
um, between the kind of imperative for financial profit and also the need for these asylum directors to um, to prove that there are these, you know, kind of men on the cutting edge of science, um, right. that they are invested in their patients' well-being, um, and that the patients themselves have been convinced that this is the the best way to kind of find find treatment and cure. Yeah. yeah. So you you make the excellent point that the asylums are racially segregated, but one thing that we know about colonialism and human behavior is that there's going to be after a number of years, some people that don't quite fit into yeah. nice, tidy racial categories. Sure. So what about Metis or, or mixed race individuals? Yeah. And you talk about a few of these I case do. studies. Yeah. So how, how do they fit in? Yeah. They, they caused a lot of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a case of one patient, for instance, who, um, because there was no room left in the European pavilions, was sent to a Vietnamese pavilion. Um, and at the point at which a space became available in the European pavilion, he refused to move back. Um, and this, I think really kind of, it exposed this kind of like tension in terms of how the French are thinking about race and about the ability of the Métis to actually, um, kind of assimilate Mm -hmm. to kind of like French styles of behavior and comportment, um, and their not just their ability to do it, but their willingness or wanting to do it, right? Like the fact that he didn't want to but be in the with other French patients, um, I think created a bit of a crisis at the institution itself. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I mean, that's partly what this book is trying to do too, is like blurring these boundaries both inside and outside the asylum, um, but also blurring boundaries between different kinds of diagnostic categories, racial categories. Um kind of showing how these are all really kind of like negotiated and contested identities, not least of which are from the patients themselves. So one of the really difficult things in in writing a history of psychiatry is really trying to foreground the experience of patients. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to do that whenever possible here. There are, um, there are some stories in the book about um, patient protest about them actually um, kind of resisting the kind of diagnostic categories that have been imposed on them, saying, I'm not crazy, I shouldn't be here. There are stories of patients escaping the asylum from time to time. Um, I also have really tried to kind of highlight the voices of Vietnamese family members as themselves kinds of agents who are um, trying to kind of um, manipulate or negotiate the system for their own kind of advantage as well. Um, not just for themselves, but also for their patients who are often kind of loved ones who they wanted at home. Um, so kind of finding, trying to read these files kind of against the grain and trying to find those moments of, um, kind of like tension, negotiation, contestation are really important. Well, uh, thanks to your source material, but also thanks to your, your skills as a writer. And it's really a very well-written, very lovely read. I mean, I I, I really, it's, it's, it's great to find serious academic work. That's just engaging prose, (laughs) right? Um, but uh, th- thanks to both your source material and uh, and your skills as a writer, we really get a sense of uh, these lived experiences and these stories. Can you flip this a little bit and say a few words on, I think, what you cover in um, Chapter 2? Um, what, what are the day- what's day-to-day life and what are the challenges for the staff, both the Vietnamese and yeah. uh, the French uh, staff running these asylums? Mm-hmm. Um so the one of the big problems that was faced by the asylum administration was the 
the turnover of the staff, um, kind of recruiting them was really difficult. It was not seen as a desirable position. Um, you're dealing with a really difficult kind of population. Um, many asylum guards were actually former prison guards, and they tended to approach their patients in such a manner. And it took a long time for asylum directors to kind of train them to think of them as patients and not as prisoners. Yeah, and, th- and this is not just a problem of the colonial yeah. uh, setting, right? I mean, this is yeah. just sort of standard in mental health facilities. This is, yeah. you know, someone is confined there. So yeah. are you guarding them or are they there for treatment and right. you're, right. you're helping them get better? What what right. does this mean for the rank and file right. worker? Right. And at a certain point, the kind of the recruitment of the asylum staff itself was kind of, it was seen as partly, they were trying to recruit people who would exemplify the kind of qualities that um, that the patients would ideally end up um, kind of... Um, um, emulating? Em- yeah, yeah. 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 Emulating so in the end. Right. Exactly. This is, this is healthy individual that you need to work towards. Exactly. So they weren't just providing kind of surveillance. They were also acting as a model of what you should be like. So if you've and got it's your, your, kind your of, brutal prison guard. Yeah, you know, no, it's a kind of like they're providing a kind of moral education in these like everyday interactions with their patients. Um, and so for instance, um, it was considered at one point no longer desirable that an asylum guard would speak French because that would give patients the the idea that they were they were trying to be too elitist or bourgeois or whatever, that they should just be able to, um, that being able to speak French and aspire, aspire to kind of like Mm-hmm. Kind of French mm-hmm. elitist bourgeois culture was actually not all that desirable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, <laughs> so one of the things I one of the points that I make in the book is, is there's this difficulty in both recruiting uh, recruiting staff, um, but I also think about the staff themselves as quite vulnerable, um, and I talk about. Um, how we should think about not just like kind of the rational management of patients, but also think about the calculate calculation of like risk management that's mm-hmm. also happening um, because these pavilions that had been built to house patients were often falling down. There are problems of like mosquitoes um, of the ways in which they were, um, they were constructed where it wasn't possible to actually see all of them all at once. Um, so the guards themselves were also, quite vulnerable because of some of the, the the insecurities that had been built into the ways that the institutions had been constructed in the first place. Bienhoa um, was thought to be like too cramped and narrow that you didn't have clear sight lines. Um, and this, I think, kind of raises the stakes for everybody, right, in terms of how you're, how you're managing patients, right, and how you, how you um, consider your own sense of risk and vulnerability. Um, a lot of these issues were then addressed when they went to build the second asylum, um, the Voy Asylum in Tonkin in the North in 1934. Um, so yeah. I but mean, that, that is more elements of the Panopticon, some more Foucauldian in that regard. Exactly. Right? So the pavilion, for instance, in the very middle, there would be like a guard room and he could look out, mm-hmm. you know, onto a window onto each side so that he could see all of the patients at once, for instance. Um, but the roof tiles, for instance, at Bienhua were like very easily moved. So patients could escape through there. They're often too hot. They were very dark. I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of like daily challenges that the asylum staff had to confront. How do the French doctors see themselves? And I'm, I'm assuming they're majority French doctors. Do we start to have Vietnamese doctors towards the end of the colonial era? Well, it's actually, um, you see Vietnamese doctors assisting French doctors in the, from the 1920s. Uh-huh. So the French built the Hanoi School of Medicine. It opened in 1902. Um, 
And by the early 1930s, they had started a special training in psychiatry. Um, so basically how these institutions would work is there'd always be like a single French white male asylum director who would be assisted in his duties by a French trained Vietnamese doctor. Now, one of these Nguyen Van Huy would become the first Vietnamese director of the Bien Hoa Asylum in 1955. But he, like many after other, independence, after independence, yeah. exactly. But he, like many other Vietnamese doctors, actually went back to France and did additional training um, before returning to Indochina. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually the, the problem of staffing at that level, not just asylum guards, but also in terms of psychiatric experts, not just at the, not just in the asylums, but also in the major hospitals in urban centers. It was a really, it was really difficult finding people with the requisite expertise um, to provide um, kind of opinions as part of court trials, for instance, about mm-hmm. uh, making determinations, whether someone really should be sent to an asylum or should remain in care in a hospital or sent back to their families. So there's a real kind of critical lack of um, requisite forms of psychiatric expertise in the colony. Um, but the but the Vietnamese doctors and also the asylum guards played a really important role in kind of mediating both across language and culture, how the their patients are expressing distress, right? And how the French would then how a French asylum director would then determine the correctly diagnostic classification. So they're still relying on French forms of psychiatric classification, um, but, but within a Vietnamese context. And that was something that's a really kind of core issue in the book is this kind of translation across cultures. Yeah. So what are the, uh, do you have a sense of what the language skills are like for these French physicians to how's their Vietnamese? Yeah. um, Some of them could speak fluent Vietnamese and that Mm -hmm. was, reported on, but a lot of them could not, and then relied on these intermediaries too. And, and when you rely on translation, all sorts of exactly. So that's interesting one of, things can arise. Exactly. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is kind of play, peel back these kind of like layers of mediation that arise between, um, between patients, families, communities, doctors in the colonial state. Yeah. And how do the doctors see themselves? Is this a prestige position or is it I mean, you, you mentioned um, in the book yeah. that some of the like the mid-level to lower-level Vietnamese workers um, tried to get out of there. Even some of the yeah. upper-level, uh, yeah. like trained Vietnamese, they did not want to be in this institution. Yeah. They saw it as a real demerit uh, black mark on their CV. Yeah, yeah. And did everything they could to get out of there. Yeah, I think partly because mental illness then, as and now, is highly stigmatized. Uh-huh. Um, and it also was just a really difficult job um, mm-hmm. because of all these these failures of the institutions to like operate in a daily basis. Um, but also just the challenges of working with this kind of patient population. Like most patients who are sent there were suffering from really serious um, forms of mental illnesses and often have been sent there because they had committed a kind of violent crime. Um, so yeah, you're dealing with a really kind of difficult patient population as well. And, and these asylums are also placed pretty far outside of, urban centers. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult to get access to the things that you would want in your daily life. And there's all these kind of problems that asylum directors end up having with their surveillance staff of people um, going off to gamble and like drinking too much. And it's just has this kind of rough and tumble kind of unruliness about it. Um, but the French psychiatrists who, and also the Vietnamese psychiatrists who are kind of the second in command, um, Many of them ended up staying in their posts for quite long periods and really saw themselves as like 
international men of science at the cutting edge of their profession. Um, so, and I think that really kind of informs how they think about and talk about their kind of like their daily practices mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, several times the uh, impact of families. Sure. And um, uh, in the later chapters, you talk about um, the role families play in negotiating um, with the French medical authorities. But also, um, you look at uh, discourse in popular press and mm-hmm. how Vietnamese families are starting mm-hmm. to talk about mental illness. Yeah. Now, this is in the 20s and 30s? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a real kind of explosion in the Vietnamese popular press that happens. Um, there are just hundreds of different kinds of magazines, journals, newspapers that are constantly opening and shutting, but it's really creating this new kind of like public space for Vietnamese to engage with each other about current issues of the day, everything from politics to fashion to sports um, and towards ideas about kind of science and medicine. Um, So one of the things I do in this book is I look at um, a series of popular Vietnamese medical and scientific journals that are being published in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and I kind of see this as a way in which Vietnamese experts are able to talk to a lay audience um, and to communicate um, kind of across divides of both like um, um, communi- uh, across like um, like language and culture, trying to kind of understand how do Western psychiatric classifications come to find equivalences with the ways in which Vietnamese categorize mental illness. Um, Cause you have a really kind of a large divide here in the way that we think about mental illness. We think about the body, body and mind is quite separate, right? Whereas in kind of Vietnamese understandings, it's much more kind of imbricated with each other. So you have Vietnamese experts kind of drawing on local idioms, thinking about poisoned blood or weakened nerves. They use analogies of seeds or plants as growing and in need of balance as a way of communicating um, kind of Western scientific ideas um, to an audience who is unfamiliar with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I, I argue in the book is that because of the exigencies of having to explain different ways of thinking about mental illness, you start you have a space for creating a kind of localized interpretations um, that transcend this kind of lay people expert divide. Um, and for me, I think this is really important because it really helps us to make sense of family decisions encoded in patient case files to either confine or release patients. It provides insight into how did ordinary people come to learn what mental illness is, um, what could be done about it, um, the range of therapeutic options that are available. So in the popular press, for instance, we see not only instances of like medical glossaries where, you know, that's kind of how, how these kind of concepts, Western psychiatric concepts like travel or find equivalences with Vietnamese categories, but we also have um, advice columns, which are one of my favorite sources to work with, because here you have these kind of like confessionals, right? Like someone writes in saying, I feel crazy or my uncle is crazy. These are the kinds of symptoms. What do I do about it? And a Western-trained Vietnamese doctor would then write back and tell them, well, this is what it might be. This is what you can do about it. And included like ideas for home remedies um, that a normal person could implement, right? Like painting your room a blue or green color of using, um, putting Western roses, um, the kind of the scent was thought to be really therapeutic, of playing certain kinds of music about eating certain foods and not others. Um, There's lots of cautions about like, 
not thinking too hard <laughs> or reading too many books because well, the idea also good advice for graduate yeah, students and junior yeah, faculty. <laughs> that was the thing, this idea of kind of like thinking too much or too much stress was going to promote mental illness. So, um, so what, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the arrival of French institutions and French psychiatric knowledge, it didn't replace earlier kind of pre-colonial or Vietnamese understandings of mental illness. It basically broadened the kinds of therapeutic options available. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have alongside advice columns and medical glossaries. You have the publications of um, psychological novels. So using new kinds of forms that are being pioneered in France at the time to really start to interrogate the interior self, right? The idea that you can have a private life that's divorced from your community um, and that uses kind of psychoanalytic concepts to start thinking about kind of forms of um, kind of like anxiety or like sense of disjuncture with your external surroundings. Um, You have, um, I talk about a murder trial for a young woman who's accused of killing her lover and how that's being framed in terms of, um, you know, did she commit this because she was mentally ill or not? And so what are the stakes around gender norms that are being kind of performed in that kind of exchange? One of the things I was really struck by actually was how mental illness was being mobilized to speak to a range of different kinds of concerns about what modernization in Vietnamese society meant um, in terms of the mental health of the population, for instance, about a propensity for suicide, um, about the dangers of um, of romantic individualism, about um, consumption, um, kind of about, yeah, about a wide range of kind of political and cultural issues that are really of huge interest to the Vietnamese at that moment. I think mental illness is this really interesting vehicle for talking about um, norms and flux. Mm-hmm. Now we're almost done here, but could you say sure. a few words on? Um, uh, I think it's your chapter six on um, psychiatry and the perception of there being a crime problem mm-hmm. in uh, French Indochina, and this would be in the thirties. Sure. So in the, yeah. con- in the context of yeah. the Great Depression and the economic yeah. dislocation. Yeah. Yeah. So the the book is organized as the kind of each chapter is looking at the relationship between the asylum and community from a different point of view. And I describe it in the introduction as almost like a series of concentric circles radiating outward from the asylum. So we start with, you know, we started our discussion talking about the, the kind of legal infrastructure that's built around mental illness, like what is being said about it. And then I go to talk about the daily practices of the asylum itself. And then I look at this negotiation between families and communities and being in French doctors And then these last two chapters on the popular press and then about juvenile delinquency are really trying to show the reach of psychiatric norms into everyday life. The last chapter, this chapter six, is looking specifically at the relationship between um, French psychiatry in the colony and the criminal justice system. Um, French psychiatrists um, were really starting to look for new markets of their expertise in the 1930s. So they became frustrated with having to treat populations who were basically, they felt like there there was no real hope of cure, that they had just, um, that they were only seeing patients once they presented with really serious forms of mental illness. So they started kind of advocating for these open psychiatric services and hospitals that I talked about as part of this new movement of mental hygiene. And they start looking increasingly to children, um, to thinking about, well, can we identify abnormal instincts of kids that can be managed um, so that we can prevent the emergence of a future kind of adult class of criminal offenders. Um, so they start, and this is really um, kind of responding to movements back in France that is looking at um, 
that is seeing the kind of growing kind of interconnection between the fields of psychiatry and the fields of criminal justice and the emergence of the juvenile delinquent as a specific kind of legal category that requires the intervention of social welfare, of the criminal justice system, and also crucially of the medical system. Um, so psychiatrists started to say like, well, before these kids are sent to youth reformatories that were modeled after Mitre in Indochina, um, they should, um, they should go, th- they should be rooted through um, psychiatric clinics so that they can be diagnosed, so that they can be better managed and better treated. Um, and so here, I think we really start, and there are, so we really start to see how psychiatry starts to travel outside of the clinic or the asylum itself and has tra- started to get embedded in the ways in which the criminal justice system in Indochina starts to work. And psychiatry is actually pretty successful at doing this. Now, the chapter ends by looking at the the real kind of like rising around anti-colonial nationalism and the roles that youth are playing in that. So the kind of valence of the conversation starts to shift, right? Where um, kids aren't just like this potential future class of um, adult criminals, but are themselves posing a real kind of imminent danger to the French state. Um, So that's partly what this book is trying to do too, is showing how French psychiatric expertise is becoming activated in different ways at different moments in Vietnam's history. Mm-hmm. And of course, the French Empire in Southeast Asia comes crashing down after Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Yeah. So what happens to these asylum? So the Bien Hoa asylum survived. Um, the first Vietnamese director assumes his post in 1955. He'd been the second in command in the 1930s. Um, the Japanese, when they occupied um, Indochina, actually released a lot of the patients um, from the asylum itself. Um, the state of Vietnam in 1950 was continually pulling resources. Actually, the Vietnamese director was accused of being an accomplice of the Viet Minh. So it becomes kind of embroiled in these kind of like this huge political crisis that's unfolding. And the asylums really are very much kind of like marginalized, both in like in discourse and practice. Um, but it survived and um, it is the site of the largest functioning psychiatric hospital in Vietnam today. Uh, my colleague, Alan Tran, um, who's a medical anthropologist who works at Bucknell University, um, has done an ethnography of um, this psychiatric facility, um, looking at questions around kind of anxiety and neoliberalism. Um, so it's really neat because our two our two stories really kind of like bookend the life history of this one institution. I talk in the conclusion of the book of what I know of what happened in the 1960s and 70s as um, once Vietnam reunifies, um, how there's a, uh, there's a push to create more of a kind of a mental health network and also the role that global mental health has now played with the arrival of um, international NGOs, especially from the early 1990s, um, which presents, you know, a kind of familiar set of challenges of what happens when global discourses arrive in Vietnam and then how are they kind of transformed as a result of local interactions. So my hope is that this book will also speak to people who are working in the region today, who are interested in the kind of the origins of these kinds of discussions and what kinds of insight the history of how of how kind of health conceptions travel across cultures, languages, places, peoples, um, how this kind of framework can help us think about the current public health challenges unrolling um, in the country today. Great. That's fantastic. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we let you go, uh, what comes next? What are you working on uh, right now? 
So my next project is going to be a history of drug addiction in Vietnam spanning the 20th century. Um, when I first started working on this because book... Because there was no drug addiction before the 20th century? No, but I think <laughs> no, but I think it tells us something really... It provides a really interesting window into the kinds of transformations of um, different iterations of the Vietnamese state and the relationship between state and subjects from the colonial period up into the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, and political economy around drugs. Well, yeah. I mean, so this is the thing is that a lot of a lot of what's been written about um, opium in particular is focused on these kind of questions of political economy. I'm more interested in how do questions of addiction become medicalized and pathologized? How do we see the emergence of the figure of the drug addict um, in the 1920s and 30s? I think as hugely as a result of these colonial export discourses around addiction. And then how is this figure of the drug addict um, picked up under various kind of regimes, both in North and South Vietnam? And then once the country reunifies in the advent of the Doi Moi economic policies in the 1980s, like what role does the drug addict play and how, um, how we how we talk uh, how the Vietnamese have talked about what it, does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to Vietnamese? And what are the experiences of drug addicts at different moments in history? So it's really a kind of social and medical history of drug addiction. That's um, yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. yeah, there was a recent uh, piece in I think Southeast Asia Globe on um, the two part piece on uh, meth addicts in mm. Chinookville in Cambodia. Okay. And uh, window into the world that they're living in, and, and as Shinnokville is going through this incredible transformation with the yeah. Chinese money. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting because you're seeing now like um, there's not only opiates, but there's also these kind of like synthetic drugs synthetic as well, which is posing and, a huge, yeah. a yeah, huge um, challenge to yeah. the kind of public health community. Yeah. Um, so and, yeah, so that's and, and of... you know who introduced cocaine to uh, Vietnam? Yeah. Alexander Yertsin. Oh wow! Yeah, I think he was growing it up in. Okay. Um, yeah. His, uh, yeah. The the Highland area where he um where he was, uh, started okay. reverence and he, he used okay. to make a cocaine elixir that he swore okay. by. <laughs> I mean that's but that's what's so interesting about these drugs, right? Is they both have like tremendous like kind of therapeutic and medical yeah. like value that had been long appreciated by the Vietnamese mm-hmm. before the arrival of European colonial empires. Yep. Um, but then it has this other kind of this other kind of recreational like addict- addictive qualities, right? That are highly moralized and highly stigmatized. So that's one of the things the book is really trying to kind of unpack is the different ways in which we talk about drug use and its meanings. Well, get to work on that. Okay. Um, get it get it out there so we get you back on the podcast sure. and, and talk about uh, the history of drug addiction in 20th century Vietnam. Sounds great. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. Okay. So um, I am Mike Van. Uh, I've been speaking with Claire Eddington on her new book with Cornell Press. Uh, The book is Beyond the Asylum, Mental Illness in French Colonial Vietnam. This has been a podcast on uh, New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.